I found myself up late Friday night, well, really early Saturday morning, listening to records. And it's something I don't do as much as I'd like to. I have a record player, but it's a record player in my podcasting room that's surrounded by other things. So, for example, actually recording this podcast requires me to move my record player aside a little bit, cover it up. It's kind of suboptimal, but at certain times when I'm in the mood, I can listen to records, and it is an amazing luxury. Most of my record collection, in fact, almost all of it, literally probably 99 point something percent of it, comes from when I lived in Australia in the late 1990s. And it's a sampling of records that goes back to some, you know, 1930s, 1920s recordings. One of these things is a record of Negro spirituals, which I just think is absolutely amazing and is inspiring some of my writing currently. But one record that I didn't play in record form, but I've certainly been listening to in general rotation, is The Beatles' Revolver. And there's an ongoing narrative that you may hear through these long funks associated with where I end up in the end. I've made a pretty firm commitment not to become an American. My view is that the American experience is something that I'm not necessarily enjoying currently, experiencing currently. Let's say enjoying. Mm, On the cusp of enjoying currently. And it's an amazing amount of learning. Obviously, my wife is American. But I've never felt like an American, and I think it's somewhat artificial to declare citizenship to a country, because also there are other aspects to this thing as well. I'm certainly not an Australian. And when I lived in Australia, I was born in Australia, but when I lived in Australia, people would say to me, how long have you been in Australia? I didn't appear like an Australian to other Australians. And it was a very curious and clearly short-term relationship that I had with Australia. So I don't necessarily feel burdens associated with things that Australia does now. I still have family in Australia. I have a young niece in Australia. I go back to Australia periodically. But it's not the end location for me. For me, probably since about 2000, in fact, since my experiences in the UK, the UK has always been the end location. And it's somewhat curious because in a variety of factors, I've never felt politically aligned to any country that I've been to or lived in. And I certainly don't feel any political affiliation with the US, nor did I in any way associate with Australia. But the UK is one of these curious places for me. I don't feel like I need to outline why I feel the UK is the best of all locations. There are certain aspects to it that I really like, but the quality of life that I had in the UK was untouchable. And it made me realise that if I had just enough to maintain, I could live in the UK indefinitely and feel comfortable in some fundamental sense. Feel like I was surrounded by like-minded people. I've never really felt that anywhere else in the world, and I feel that way in the UK. So let us return to The Beatles' Revolver. This is an interesting record, but my favourite track currently on Revolver is Taxman, and it echoes some interesting thoughts that I wanted to provide today associated with the royal family in the UK. Because my perspective is the royal family is a complete anomaly. But what interests me about the royal family is its instability and how its instability dramatically shapes aspects of the UK which do not exist in the US. So a little bit of curious history. In the start of the 20th century, what fermented in the revolution in Russia 
was starting to occur in a wide variety of industrial nations. It was occurring in Germany, it was occurring certainly in France, and also in the UK. And what interests me about these movements is, in particular, how centuries worth of tradition, the royal families in, well, certainly Germany and the UK, were in a particularly perilous position at that point. The potential for there to be substantial social, economic, and political revolutions were fermenting through trade unions primarily. And there is not enough scholarship about this. I actively look for more scholarship on this. And what I find is that there's a strange whitewashing, for want of a better term, that existed somewhere after the end of the First World War. So the accounts of what was going on in the start of the 20th century, particularly associated with labour movements and organising, always seems to be a bit piecemeal and missing. It's missing certain accounts that I've read through a small number of sources. And when I find situations where the existing narrative, the existing history seems to have changed rather rapidly through various periods of time, I always treat it with some degree of suspicion. The First World War as a thing, as a thing which brought millions of people in direct conflict and in peril, is one of the most curious conflicts to study, particularly associated with its origins. Now, we are told a history associated with Archduke Franz Ferdinand and all this kind of crap, but really... This kind of third-grade causal analysis associated with the start of the First World War fails to understand what was going on prior to the start of the First World War. And here, this is where I find the historical cover-up narrative, the nature of constructing something so perfectly not to address the elephant in the room, which is why all the royal families and all the political powers all moved so swiftly to get into situations of mass casualty conflict, this is never talked about. And I find it really very striking that, you know, children are taught this history associated with the First World War, which doesn't describe any of the fermentations that led into it, and also fails to address the fact that Russia was not an anomaly here. Russia was actually the slowest of a number of countries to act, particularly associated with uh, economic and industrial revolution and unionization. So what's quite extraordinary through this is that there's no meaningful analysis associated with, in the UK, very specifically, the royal family, deciding that the best possible course of events was to send the country into war, rather than allowing a certain degree of industrial progression. Now, historically, you need to understand that the industrialists, in terms of the wealth part, not the worker part, but in terms of the wealth part, the industrialists were one of the strongest and most divisive elements in the 19th century in the UK. You can see this today. If you tour, and many don't, but if you do, if you have the proclivity to tour stately homes in the UK you will see that the industrialists amassed more wealth than the royalty in a relatively short amount of time. The factories 
and the ideas of consumption, but also the ideas of vast quantities of labour and improving labour and improving labour at better pay and all this kind of phenomena completely and utterly eroded the concept of the royal family. And actually what you see is a strange renegotiation in the early part of the 20th century where industrialists could be moved into the House of Lords, these kind of things. In fact, I think it might have even happened later. I think this was more a function of what went on. I'm not sure. I don't have the exact things, but consider this. You have a new means of people creating wealth vastly faster than had existed previously. And in the process, rather than subjugating the working folk, the peasants in the fields, these folk were also being brought up too. Now, obviously, not easily and not by the deeming of the industrialists through mass force negotiation in the form of trade unions, effective trade unions. Let's discard the contemporary notion of trade unions for a second. So you have all these things going on here. And then mysteriously, this bizarre assassination by a teenager in some far-flung part of the world causes all the royal families, all the legacy power elites to throw millions of people at each other. And this whole thing survives as a means of understanding the fragility that the royal family has in the UK. And every royal generation needs to understand that historical context. Now, the most recent generation, the, you know, Harrys and what have you, they may not understand this historical context, but they will learn very swiftly as they move up that the power of the people is always far greater than the power of the royalty. And now there are even more curious economic means, although not well distributed, for people from any aspect of a society, given a certain decreasing number of privileges, to move into echelons where they are in direct competition with the royal family in some regard. All these things have caveats. Maybe not actually at the same power that existed in the early Industrial Revolution. Maybe that was a once-off thing, and the trajectory associated with the 1880s through to the 1900s, maybe that thing is never going to exist again. Certainly, the royal family has moved in that direction. But let's explore this thing. Let's explore this notion that you have a wealthy elite that is completely and utterly paranoid of the means in which the general public could get empowered sufficient to seek their overthrow. Now, I, as some kind of strange idealist, had the perspective that the royal family was not long for this world. The whole perspective of royalty and the monarchy as a thing was really a very curious historical anomaly, and it was this historical anomaly which meant that they had to instrumentally try to enact some normalization between them and the general public. And if you look at the way that they've tried to agree occasionally through very curious circumstances to start getting taxed on various things, I should also point out the royal family is not taxed, right? They are very, very curious in their legal and financial relationship to the rest of the UK. And the maintenance of this thing is a strange social anomaly. So let me get to my main argument. I've given the introduction. I've set the stage associated with this thing. 
I'm now in a position at this point in my life where I realize that the royal family is going to continue on for generations following me. Not a great thing. Not something I feel positive about. But I have had the benefit of living in the UK for a period of time. And that constructed a very curious set of counterexamples to what was a dominantly Republican here means not monarchy. It's one of these strange things where you use a term which means something completely different to mean something completely different. Let's just say my perspective associated with the monarchy and the fact that they were a historical and statistical anomaly that needed to be removed from the planet. When I lived in the UK, it's not that this view softened. I just realized that actually the UK had a series of really curious, unique things about it, which didn't exist in any of the other Western democracies that I'd lived in historically. And I've got to say, I've got to declare this up front. My uncle works for Prince Charles. It's a curious thing. It's a byproduct thing. He started working for Prince Charles before I arrived in the UK, but I've seen certain insights through him working for Prince Charles, and ultimately he has made a relatively comfortable middle-class life for himself working for Prince Charles. And this notion of the royalty as charitable givers, the royalty as supporting the arts, or in the case of my uncle, architecture, this is an interesting insight that I've had through my uncle's interaction with Prince Charles. What I find through this is that the fear and the instability and the sense that they are literally one violent conflict away from being overthrown leaves my hope that the royal family understands their importance in this legacy, that they are in a very fragile and precarious position. And unlike, for example, the way the wealthy behave in the US, the uber-rich, the, you know, senators, Kennedys, Bushes... Clintons, soon to be Obamas et al. The way these folk behave, which is purely reprehensible, then within this you have something that can come out of the instability that the royal family provides in the UK and how that is distinct from what you see in the US where people basically are still setting their bones. You know, there's still no social protection for extreme failure or these kind of things. There's just nothing here. It's still pure... It's not even capitalism. It's some kind of strange cronyism, corruption, pivoting thing with echoes of capitalism, but in no way like free market capitalism. It's all just very protected and cronyistic. So what I'm trying to do here is not necessarily justify the positive need for the royal family or really any need for it at all. It's just to say that its position in the UK and its attempts to bring in, you know, the, the attempts to move in the industrialists, the attempts to move in, you know, various people into lordship positions is really very interesting and creates a strange kind of social... I don't know. It's just different. It's what's different about the UK versus the US in some fundamental level and ultimately in a very curious set of a series of negatives and a series of small positives. It seems to be slightly above the circumstances that I observe in the US. And also it creates a very interesting set of not necessarily intellectuals, but just people that are part of the general discourse. It's one of the things that I really enjoy about my friendship with Bob Mottram 
is that he actively seeks these people out in the UK. So I can, you know, hear aging anarchists raving on about various ideas of, you know, just a complete lack of political representation, which ultimately I agree with on a number of quite fundamental points. But what interests me through this is that if it was in the US, there wouldn't even be that intellectual discussion. The The nature of that discussion in the US is so not necessarily repressed, not even really, it's just, it's not indigenous, right? <laughs> These ideas cannot survive indigenously. One of the things that I'm doing in my writing is that I'm writing about a particular meeting in West Virginia of two very curious characters that come together. And in that writing, there is something very curiously artificial about it. In fact, one of the participants, the guy who's based in West Virginia, is actually a transplant to West Virginia. Because within these areas, although some of this exists some in some remote areas in Kentucky, there is so little scholarship, for want of a better term, even independent scholarship associated with political analysis. And instead... Or a series of kind of, you know, foible, dead ends, confused nationalism narratives. I mean, it really is very curious what percolates in these areas as what I would look for, not even necessarily revolutionary thought, but just something in contrast to the general narrative. Like, extreme poverty should, in some regard, provide some contrast to the general narrative. And I think one of the things that I find really, it's like, starves the oxygen in the US uh, towards any kind of conversation of any kind of, you know, what comes next? What is the future going to hold of anything but what is prescribed by a very tightly aligned two-party system? The kind of intellectual discourse that this requires is well established in the UK. And I think it's well established for a variety of factors that don't exist in the US. So, what I'm trying to do here is outline some thoughts, some dot points. This is still something that I'm filling in in my own thinking. And actually, to tie it back to Beatles' Taxman, the song Taxman is about George Harrison finally understanding that he's being texted a disproportionately high amount. Like, he's been this, you know, kid in Liverpool, which I thoroughly recommend anyone who's ever enjoyed the Beatles go to Liverpool and see the condition that the city is still in, and then project back to what it would have been like in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Those boys had to play pretty hard to get out of Liverpool. And the interesting point of Taxman, it's a, it's a point of inflection in UK culture, because Labour had put this huge tax on the wealthy, 95%. But at the same point, all the wealthy, like, you know, the royalty, all the lordship, all these folks had means of evading this tax. The only people that got taxed were the Beatles, right? And some other poor schmucks that kind of stumbled into this thing. But it's an interesting social narrative and the representation of taxation and power elites and all this kind of stuff. I could talk about that a bit more, but I don't know whether or not it makes good podcast listening. So reflect on these ideas, these movements, these thoughts, and certainly I am reflecting on them as well in a contrast between where I am currently and where I hope to be in the future, and also perhaps trying to redress a balance associated with ageing and just being thoroughly disgusted that, like, none of my political ideas, none of my political views, none of my perspective is any way embodied in contemporary discourse or anything. 
it just seems almost like and I feel this with regards to studying the Second World War and, as you might note, also the First World War. This stuff is meaningless now. Like, no one cares about any of this crap. It's not really interesting to anyone. I can't have discussions with people, or at least not in this country, about that. Maybe in the UK, who knows? So, anyway, reflect on this as an idea which is following through my head as I listen to a recording from the 1960s, periodically. Tom Barbelay sitting in his podcasting room, signing out.